You're listening to the weekly Portland podcast, A Slice of City Life, every Monday. My name is Gregory Day. Thanks for tuning in. On today's show, I speak with Dan Ackerman of Ackerman Films. He also owns Stage 13, which is the only native green screen studio in the city. Oh my god, he gave me a tour of this thing. It's like Star Wars. Now, Stage 13 is actually located in the Old City Nightclub. Dan showed me some of the back rooms in the studio, and I'm pretty sure some light bondage was going on back there. (laughs) I'm just assuming. I mean, I've heard so many, many stories about the City Night Club, and all of them have been terribly exciting. Now, Dan's speciality is stop-motion animation, and he's worked with Eddie Murphy on the PJs. He's been involved with Leica. He's also in fantastic shape. <laughs> he's a very nice guy. I really had a lot of fun at his studio. It's taken forever for me to post this thing, and I'm just really glad to do it because I really like the guy. So I'm really glad to do this. Let's jump right in. It's Dan Ackerman of Ackerman Films on pdxpodcast.com. Okay, so this is the stage. And uh, we've got our red light system so we can tell people to shut the hell up. And in here we've got a little makeup room. Headed to the makeup room right now. Yeah, it's also the green room. And back in the day when it was a city nightclub, it was some other kind of green room. Oh, this is the old city nightclub. That's right. Okay, I remember that. (laughs) Yeah, now it's got a notorious history. And uh, they got kicked out of here for equally notorious reasons, but they they moved on. I think there's some new incarnation of it, but it was a city for a good 10 years or so. And they had it divided up into about four or five different clubs. And we've heard lots of stories from people that have come here to shoot because now it's a shooting stage. And when people realize that it used to be the city, they go, oh, I used to go there. Do you know? And then I'd hear all these great tales. And so now there's even a Facebook page dedicated to it. And I could probably show you some other stuff. But yeah. uh, anyway, so we use this for the green room now. And it's got a little makeup place. And Fantastic. We have, uh, and upstairs, uh, this used to be the lockup up here for, I guess it was where they kept their money or other valuables. If, the lockup. Well, it had like iron bars and triple thick plywood nailed together. It was impossible to get it out, but we tore out a wall and turned it into this little mini stage for doing still photography work. And a little bit of long-term animation projects are shot here. So we have a, a little white sweep that's a, a translite sweep so you can light it from behind or in front. And I put in a grid so you can hang your lights and keep the C-stands off the floor. This is all analog, right? Mostly for the... Uh, well, the lights in the in the sweep, yeah, they're they're analog, but we shoot digitally. So, yeah. like that's a, a Canon product, and we shoot a lot on simple DSLRs and uh, use tungsten lights. This is a huge green screen spanning half the room. Yeah, it's mostly green screen. That's what we we keep it native green screen because nobody else does. Everybody else's uh, studios yeah. in town have white psych walls. And mostly we wanted it for effects shooting so we could extract actors off of it and put them someplace else. And we felt there's a need for people who want a turnkey green screen service. You come in, turn on the lights, add camera and and microphone and start shooting. And so that's what we use it for primarily. But there's also times where it goes white. And uh, so there's a layer cake of paint. If you peel up a piece of the paint, you'll see it's like micro thin layer of green then white then green then white then blue then black then green then white then green it goes on like that yeah. spanning eight years of paint piled up 
Now, your clientele, I, I would imagine mostly music video, right? It's a big music town, is that? Yeah, you know, there's a fair number of people that have shot their music videos here. But oddly, um, those budgets are pretty small, and they figure out other solutions. And just there's yeah. maybe maybe one out of every five or six shoots would be something like that, right. where the so. rest of them are going to be either talking heads for Internet videos or they're going to be some commercial piece or every once in a while some piece of a feature will get shot here. So it's a real mix. And yeah. there's really no guessing it either. I can never tell what the next job's going to be unless I'm planning one of my jobs. Yeah. And, you know, you've been here for, what, 30 years in, based in Portland? Is that right? Yeah, I think yeah, something like that. A long time. 87, 86. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, 30 years. Yeah. I never really realized how the time's flown by. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've been here for a while. Um, somewhat of a fixture, I guess. Uh, I've worked a lot in stop motion over those years. And I started off with a little studio on 19th next to where Par Lumber is. And I had a studio there with a couple of other animators. And yeah. we just were doing effects and odd animations, usually industrial things. Sometimes <laughs> they'd apply in commercials. But, yeah. uh, you know, most of that work has shifted now to where I think in 96 or 7, I started working more in stop motion. And puppet production started happening in Portland. And uh, clay animation became less and less and puppet animation with foam injected puppets and the like became more and more yeah. and so I've always worked sort of in some animation capacity doing puppets and you're a light specialist too right my main thing is director of photography lighting uh, stop motion sets but now it's been a lot of live action things as well with this mm -hmm. for the last eight years I've been doing nothing but more full-scale things people products and so it's been a real mix there too yeah now, I saw one of your commercials with the refrigerators looking like they're dancing around into the home. Was that filmed here? Um, one of those was, it was a, it was a Lowell's yes. spot. And right. actually, that was directed by Shell White at Bent Image Labs. And I was hired as a director of photography for that. But we shot one of those spots in here. And I think it was the washer and dryer yeah. combo. So they built a whole, uh, like a mud room out of somebody's house they built it into the stage and uh so whole mud, mud room yeah See, it's like you know the utility room in somebody's home where the washer and dryer might be yeah. so they built out something with real wood floors and walls and windows and the view through the windows and all that stuff and then they had the exterior was shot in somebody's driveway so it looks like the washer and dryer dancing across out of the truck into the home yeah remember that yeah, yeah. but little jobs like that are yeah they're incredibly complicated even though they're uh, they seem simple and cute, but they're really elaborately planned out. I could tell. Yeah. There's a lot going on in that clip. <laughs> yeah, and that's Bent Image Labs that produced that. So for those, I was the director of photography, and it's always an honor to you know, be able to do something like that, a national spot. Right. Uh, but it's a mix here in Portland. You do whichever job comes through the door. Right, but you know, you've had national exposure yeah, with the PJs with right. Eddie Murphy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? A little bit of Hollywood. A little bit of Hollywood here from Portland. Well, I, I could say this, that working on the PJs was probably the most fun you can have at work. And I think it's probably still the same for the folks over at Leica that are doing feature after feature. Yeah. Because those are the people that I worked with. And, but there at the time, they were with Will Vinton Studios. And so we never saw Eddie Murphy 
you know, I saw a few other notables, but uh, we were just in the trenches. <laughs> you know, we were in these curtained warehouses where everything that you'd hear would be some <laughs> joke or remark from one of the crew members. So yeah. you're in this room that you can't see anything else except for your own little set. Right. But then there's like 50 sets running with the curtains between everything. And you could hear everybody laughing and talking and chattering about or being told to shut up because somebody's trying to concentrate on their animation. But it was literally like an insane asylum, but with a good direction and a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of lark and fun. You know, it, it really wasn't about Hollywood so much for us. It was we get to work with these really cool sets. We yeah. had the best puppet producers around, and set builders and camera operators, <laughs> and we had like the largest collection of these old thirty-five millimeter Mitchell cameras in the world. You know, it was like wow. fifty-two of them assembled in one place at one time. And they were all shooting film, so we were lighting it with uh, tons of power, yeah. you know, all tungsten lighting. And uh, it really was a, a level of production that I'd never seen before, and I've never seen it since. Really? You know, yeah. Well, I've worked a little bit with uh, Coraline, but, um, and, and that's certainly a, a level up. But I didn't work there very much of the show, and so... I think for the length of time and the amount of shots we were doing, the PJs was like as good as it gets. Yeah. And you working you were working with the Leica guys. Well, there wasn't a Leica then. I there mean that was yeah. no, that was um it was Will Vinton's project along with Ron Howard and Imagine Entertain Entertainment was his company. Right. And uh so there were some other players and I think Phil Knight was always involved with Will Vinton and lended money to the studio and right. and had uh you know a division of ownership on it and at some point will ended up um dissolving and it became like it so i'd like to talk about your humble beginnings like how did you even get into filmmaking in the first place i mean this crazy idea to create film and you're a former cartoonist you you're a photographer you've got a lot of different interests right Wow. Uh, yeah, I've always liked drawing. I mean, that was my first thing. Was I would draw cartoons as a kid yeah, and yeah. Uh, did little comic strips in high school and junior high. I was always known for being the kid that could draw. Yeah. And as I got older and maybe lazier, I started playing with cameras. And you could make an image so much easier with a camera. Yes. But then between the two, there was all this other experimental ground to cover. And I took an a animation class from the Film Study Center back in the 70s with Roger Kukas, who was making a film called Up. And he was impressed, and he inspired me to consider going after CalArts. He said, you should go to CalArts. This is really a school where you might learn something, and you could really do well there, he thought. Hmm. And so I kind of had that seed planted by him, and I, I did look into it and uh, applied and was put on a wait list. You know, I right. applied pretty late, and so I was a little disenchanted, but... In the meantime, uh, some things happened, and I had an opportunity to go to Japan. So I lived in Japan for a year when I was 21. And <clears throat> when I came back from that, I thought, you know, this is great. I could, I could live in Japan and just become this foreigner, the gaijin yeah. over there. And uh, yet, at the same time, I was accepted into CalArts, and I told them I was interested in coming, but it could be next year. And they said, sure. So after um, a year off from this culture... I came back into the one place that was probably uh, an okay place to land, which was this school where people from all nations had gathered and artists from all over. Mm -hmm. 
it, it was this melting pot of creative crazies, and I really loved that place. So four years there, and I had made my little film and uh, hadn't forgot about Japan. And so even though I was enjoying being a filmmaker of sorts, doing this little animation, uh, I got on a plane and went right back to Tokyo. And uh, it only took me about two months there before I realized my place should probably be in Los Angeles because one thing about Tokyo was that uh, I was okay as long as I was teaching English. Well, when it came to actually doing animation, well, they had a lot of other Japanese people there that could do that. And they yeah. didn't need me. And so I was, uh, you know, turned back to L.A. and my friends from school and ended up working on a number of different films like One Crazy Summer, um, Better Off Dead, with, really? a, with a buddy, uh, buddy of mine, Bill Cox. You Cotton. worked on Better Off Dead. Just on the opening titles. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, you know, it was, was really exciting. Yeah, I love that all, film. That's a big all, part of my childhood. Really? <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was Bill Kopp and Steve Holland, wow. Savage Steve. And uh, so those guys ended up working out of Gower Studios on uh, One Crazy Summer. And that became... Also a great film. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> and I was like a technical director on that film. Um, and so we did everything with cells and some backlit animation. So I was able to bring in some of my old favorite filmmaking techniques. And so we did all these scenes, and uh, me and a bunch of guys, half of whom ended up on uh, Tracy Ullman's thing and then on The Simpsons. Oh, I remember and, Tracy Ullman's show. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of those guys uh, yeah. ended up working on that. Um, and was well, there animation on the Tracy Ullman show? Oh, yeah. No, there was this whole thing that happened on there that was like the beginnings of The Simpsons. Yeah. And, uh, but I never met Matt Groening. I never really knew him so well. We were just the animators or the you know, cell painters. And, uh, there was a bunch of us that worked together on that. Yes. And then we uh, disbanded, and people went off in their different directions. I went back to Japan. Um, I had a, another opportunity there to make English lesson videos for children. And then after about a year of that, came back here and started production in Portland. And at that and this was when? That was 86, 87. That's 86. when I first moved back here. 86. Yeah. So and you've been here ever since? Pretty much. A few side trips. Yeah. For a number of years through that time until like 95 or so, there would be jobs in L.A. So be back and forth. You'd do a job in L.A. and come back up here try and find more work, and sometimes do, sometimes don't, and then go back to L.A. if there was more work. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, I felt like a migrant laborer, you know, following the, the opportunities wherever they were. Now, and you worked as an apprenticeship with Merrill, is it Merrill Leichenberger? Actually, uh, he needed a video guy, a video camera operator, so I wasn't really in an apprenticeship. He just needed somebody full-time. Yeah. And so he had this company called Network Video Marketing, and this was in Portland. Yeah, back, it was actually okay. over in Beaverton. Okay. And so he had a, a, a little office over there off of the 217. And I'd go in there, and they were fulfilling orders. They were making uh, how-to-be-a-millionaire programs. And one of them was on real estate. Another one was how to get the job you really want. Uh, yeah. A lot of different how-to kind of videos because at the time it was all cable. Cable was the king. And if you could right. get a, an ad with one of these half-hour programs or hour-long program, and you'd put it on late at night or whenever they'd buy the time. And then they would get a bunch of people calling in to get these yeah. how-to videos right. and booklets. Yeah. And they made a lot of money at that. And uh, it was at that point that I met Merle's son, 
Brett, and uh, there's a bunch of other people that we worked together with, and it was just a lot of fun. But I think Brett was all of like 13 or 14 years old Mm -hmm. and was working on some little films of his own. And uh, we just had a lot of fun. He'd come in and ask me how the video editor worked, and it was all three-quarter-inch tape back then Uh with a little, I think it was a little Panasonic switcher we used. So that you could, you know, the coolest thing you could do would be to dissolve right there in front of your very eyes, you know. That, right, uh, yeah, that's a great effect. <laughs> you know, at the time that was high tech. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I worked for Merrill for about a year and a half, and then more jobs came up out of LA, and so I, I took off for LA again and kept mm-hmm. bouncing back and forth. Yeah. Um, I don't know what, what else I could say about the network days. Well, I know that there's you, things that Merrill and I did. You know, we, yeah. we would travel. Like, he would take me to places. Like, we'd go to Hawaii. I am curious because you, you you have done a lot of work overseas in L.A. Why did you – you've been in Portland for so long. Why Portland? I'm from here. Well, I'm from Hood River, actually. Yeah. And so it's nice to have a base. And if yeah. your base is near family, um, all the better. Yeah. And plus, I mean, even if I didn't have a family here, this is some of the most beautiful country and Hood River is even more beautiful, mm-hmm. but there just isn't enough of the urban sprawl in, in Hood River, not yet anyway. Yeah. So I like Portland for being close. It's kind of midway between the beach yeah. and the desert, yeah. and that's just right for me. I, I like having access to places like that. The thing that I didn't like about L.A. was it took about three or four hours to get out of town, and sometimes as long to get back in yeah. just to go have some adventure. And uh, so... You know, weekends would be half eaten up just by logistics of travel, right. and that really began to grind on my my feelings. After a while, I said, "I I can't do this anymore." And sure, it would be nice to go up in the mountain and hit some snow without having to drive six hours. Right. You right. know. Or, and Studio Thirteen seems to be doing pretty good business. Yeah. Uh, well, this place it, it ebbs and flows. I mean, there's times where it's just quiet as a a church and some of the quietest times that's the easiest times to get in and and shoot here would be in august when everybody's on vacation and the middle of winter like typically after january 1st right okay um this year wasn't that way it was really busy as of the winter and then i've been busy again this summer so but the usual thing is that uh, spring and fall is when everybody shoots it's all the stuff oh, coming up for commercials before Christmas, and there's stuff right. going on in the spring as people launch their new uh, business plans. And mm-hmm. um, but there's really no guessing it. It's a funny town. There's about oh three or four other studios in town that are comparable or better, and then all the big shows like Grimm and Librarians, and uh, they've all used their own warehouses, right. so they don't really need studio space. They've kind of built their own, hmm. and. Uh, you know, people have been talking about sound stages in Portland and how that's what this town really needs, but then just as many people say, well, I'll pick it up a dime on the dollar when it goes belly up. So it's been a fun time uh, keeping a small place like this going because it's not a lot of overhead, and so I can, you know, weather slim times and uh, also enjoy really, you know, busy times too. And, and like I say, you know, when the projects come in, there's never two alike, and they're, yeah. they're a lot of fun. And people are usually having a good time when they... It's interesting for you to to see what comes in and what are the projects. Is that inspiring to you? Sure, <laughs> yeah. I like seeing uh, people's creative process happening. 
And I learn stuff all the time. You know, I've seen so many different levels of production that uh, yeah. in cases where people need help and they ask for it, you know, I have a great time being the teacher that I've become. Yeah. And uh, when they don't need help, I'm just a fly on the wall, just letting things happen. Yeah. Uh, my biggest regret that I didn't time lapse all the different shows that have been going on here oh, one after right. the next, which yeah. is another love of mine is time lapse. We haven't talked about that. No, uh, that was my thing. And then, time lapse. Um, I don't know if you have enough time in your show to put all this stuff together. <laughs> um, I would just say that uh, time lapse really filled in the gaps for me between gigs in the 90s. Yeah. And then when the digital revolution happened with all these digital cameras coming out, suddenly everybody was shooting time lapse. And I've started shooting less and less of it. And I was marketing stock footage and all that stuff for a while. But as everyone was able to do it with DSLRs, there's a flood of it on the market. Yeah. So the only time I'd ever shoot time-lapse after that would be like documenting a show here right. or, you know, something that it was a pet project of mine. Yeah. Like I've done a number of buildings being built, like the Fox Tower. I shot that and yeah. I, I shot that with three cameras oh. and the owners put me in several of their buildings around it. So yeah. we got a three-point view of the thing coming together. I'm but that was all, all that was all done with 16 millimeter film cameras. It wasn't digital. Huh. Um, but time lapse and stop motion, they're pretty much the same in terms of the equipment you use. Right. And having an intervalometer now is nothing. Back in the day, it was really hard to find one cheap. A Tobin intervalometer would cost you a thousand bucks, and I didn't have the money to do that, so I built my intervalometers using these little time delay relays that allowed me to, uh, you know, put together for like $60 in parts what would cost me a thousand bucks to buy commercially. So I built up a bunch of these boxes and uh, took them to trade shows and I do like the Sony PlayStation exhibit every year. Yeah, so a lot of PlayStation clips in your reel. Yeah, that's... PlayStation was a lot of fun. I mean, they they had so much money to throw at their exhibits. I think they had millions of dollars to throw at their exhibit, a yeah, booth for, for millions. But they were, you know, selling people on how great their games are, yeah. and it worked for them. And for years, that time lapse that I did for them became sort of their uh, resume back to the home office to tell Mr. Sony how they spent the money. And it worked for that. I didn't know it at the time. I was just making a little five-minute synopsis of what took them two weeks. Yeah. And it became their their record. their record, yeah. yeah. So that was kind of a neat thing. It was a business that popped out of the blue that I didn't know that I was going to do. It just, I fit into it, so it, it made sense to keep doing it. And then they stopped doing that in 2005. They stopped doing it for a number of years, and yeah. they brought it back, but it's uh, the budgets are way down. Like a lot of things, right? Budgets got truncated. I just got cut. So we all came up with more innovative ways to do stuff. And now what's the marketing thing today? What are, what's the next twist in marketing? Is it going to be internet? Will people learn to buy things because they read about it on LinkedIn? That's a good question. And I think I'm that's what's happening. Yeah. So, but anyway, in terms of what's fun and interesting, uh, it's all fun and interesting, I think. You, know, you, you seem like you're having a lot of fun here. I, I do. I enjoy this place. Um, I mean, I, I think that I have probably just as much fun, you know, going swimming in the ocean or skiing down a mountain. But yeah. um, there's something really satisfying about working really hard on something that seemed impossible at first. And then 
you know, you get this adrenaline going after about 12 or 15 hours yeah. in the hard part of a production, but you make it through, and that's somehow really rewarding. Yeah, 15 hour a day, that's really... Not uncommon, yeah, that's, yeah. that's really common. Um, yeah. well, it's nice when you get the same jobs that are just 10-hour days. and Right. You know, most of the people <laughs> that come here and shoot, they're done within 10 hours, and so it's, it's a little bit easier. That is good. Yeah. Is there anything that we have not covered... We've covered animation, the tour, the plays. Um, I mean, it's a whole 30 years. Oh, there is one other thing. Okay. Okay, so in the last year, we've been working with a couple from Moscow. And so one of the things that my wife and I have been developing is an educational approach. Um, I used to hear, you know, all the time I'd hear, those who can do, those who can't teach. And then I saw a bumper sticker that says, those who can teach and I think that's right because the ones that really do should be the ones teaching because they know this inside baseball feel and attitude towards this bit which is production and so uh, with our Moscow friends and my wife who's from Kiev uh, we have this intercultural connection and we're trying to develop a let let me start that again we are developing a cross-cultural platform for education and so it'll be a bit of intercultural a bit of arts learning and so there are numbers of us that have uh, arts and drawing skills and my wife has uh, let me see what what is her thing going to be you have to cut this part Um, (laughs) (laughs) because I'm trying to figure out a way to say it that's right okay so she's my wife is an art therapist and she's going to be teaching about art therapy because if you're going to do art, you really got to have your mind right. Yes. And so that's become somewhat of a important tenet of what we're going to put together into a series of lessons. And we'll offer them uh, in the next year or so. We're working on the content right now. So that's been sort of on the back burner, but it's moving to the front burner now as things are a little bit slow. Mm-hmm. So we're able to put more time into that yeah. project. And so that's coming out, and it's called Art Clever. Art Clever. Art Clever, yeah. So it's uh, basically an online learning platform mm. for arts learning. So arts education is going to be the thing, and we feel like people need to be serious about their approach to art. The online learning platform is called Art Clever, yes. and it's really, I think, a great way for us to disseminate information right. and make some small amount of money in return. And the main thing is it's guided learning. So it's not going to be just putting a video on the tube. It's going to be guided learning so that you're actually working with an instructor, almost like an apprenticeship. Thank you so much for meeting with me, Dan. It was a real real pleasure. I appreciate you coming by, Gregory. Thanks. Thanks.